Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. We are also part of the Caregiving Podcast Network, which features podcasters focusing on caregiving issues, caregiving stories, and generating caregiving conversations. So today we're going to talk about how do we count family caregivers, and my guest is going to join us in just a few moments. I wanted to give you a couple quick updates just so you're in the know about what's going on on caregiving.com. We have a contest right now for our annual Family Caregiver of the Year Award. We're looking for five family caregivers who not only care for a family member, but do their best to keep their life. So they might be active in their community, they use community resources, and they provide an inspiration to others who might be thinking, how in the world do I keep a life during a life of caregiving? Nominations can be submitted through March 31st. So March 31st is the deadline. We'd love for you to nominate yourself or a family caregiver that you know. You can go to caregiving.com to submit your nomination, and we'll choose five. We have a kind of an interesting process, but ultimately we'll find five that we're going to honor at our National Caregiving Conference at a special award ceremony on November 8th, the evening of November 8th. Our conference happens November 9th and 10th. Our call for submissions closed on Friday, so I'm in the process of creating our agenda and notifying those who are going to present that they are going to present. So you can learn about our conference and see our agenda in early April. I'll keep you posted on that as well. And then on April 7th, we're doing something which is both a way to help you and a way for us to raise money for a National Caregiving Respite Fund. And on April 7th, our certified caregiving consultants will be available in our chat rooms on caregiving.com to provide answers, ideas, suggestions, and resources for you. From 9 a.m. Eastern Time until 5 p.m. Eastern Time, you can connect with one of our consultants, ask a question, ask for suggestions, ask for comfort, <laughs> and we are there just solely for that purpose. There's no cost for you, although we do suggest that you kick in a donation. And five bucks would be awesome. So if you come on April 7th, you connect with a consultant and you feel like, wow, that was really that was really fantastic. We'd love for you to think about kicking in a small donation. Five bucks would be great to our National Caregiving Respite Fund. So we're kind of thinking, you know what? We've got to just take the bull by the horns on this one. We've been hoping for some relief, some ability for the federal government to provide respite services for family caregivers. We know that's not going to happen. So we're going to do it ourselves, and our first initiative is to help family caregivers in need get to our National Caregiving Conference. We know that the conference is life-changing because we hear that every year after the conference ends. So we'd like to take away I Can't Afford It and help those who can't afford it come to the conference. So April 7th is Consulting for Good. It's a way for you to connect to consultants who can help and a way for us to raise some money to help family caregivers in need come to our National Caregiving Conference. Okay, so those are the updates for you. So let me tell you about our guest who's joining us today. So our guest is Susan Rowe, and after a career in IT and as a worship leader in the Methodist Church, 
Susan joined Daughterhood at its inception in January 2015. As a young woman, Susan gained firsthand experience working as an aide in a nursing home run by the Little Sisters of the Poor, and again as a caregiver for her mother who suffered from dementia. Most recently, Susan's working toward completing her caregiver's consultant certification through caregiving.com. So welcome, Susan. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Denise. Good to be here. Okay. So today's topic is big (laughs) and wild, and we'll just see where we go with this one. I think it's just kind of fun to talk it out. So I'll give you a little context around our conversation for today. In 2013, Pew Research released research around family caregivers, and they counted family caregivers as numbering more than 90 million in the United States. And that figure was jaw-dropping to think that there's that many family caregivers in the United States. So as I was talking about this research on caregiving.com, I really started to think about, well, if there's so many, why is caregiving so lonely? And if there's so many, why is it still hard to connect to help and support? And those conversations led to the question of, well, how do we count family caregivers? And so then we had a conversation about, well, who is a family caregiver? And what was interesting is some of the family caregivers who participated in the conversation felt that we should have a really definitive uh, definition of family caregivers. So fast forward, we're talking about caregiving all over now. And so the conversation has gone back to, well, how many family caregivers are there in the United States? So I'm wondering, Susan, when you think about who is a family caregiver, what definition do you go by? So I'm throwing the big That's one interesting. Well, first of all, I would, say, I would say that that figure is probably a lot, lot higher now. You know, yes, 90, 90 right? million. I mean, you know, the baby boom generation is growing older and older and, and things are shifting so quickly. Um, what is my definition of family caregiver? Well, I mean, simply put, anyone who's who's stepping into the into an unexpected role of 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 helping their, helping someone they love through 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 the the, the trauma of of age aging, um, and there's a there's, there is kind of a wide gamut, and it usually and I, I know you've experienced this too, Denise. It usually starts small and can get get big pretty quickly. <laughs> You know, it might start yeah. with, 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 with having breakfast with, with mom once a week to all of a sudden there for fall, taking major responsibility for, for financial situation for parents, you know. So, um, but anyone, anyone who, you know, who, who, who's starting to, to change their role with their parents and with ones they love from just a, um, you know, the, the standard roles we have of, of daughter and son to um, – Really, really helping them through that hard, that hard, hard, hard aging process that can sometimes be so heartbreaking. So I actually have a broader definition. Sure. And it's any and it's anyone who helps a family member or friend. So it's not related to the age of our carries. And I also am very sensitive to the fact that sometimes we don't care for someone we love. They're in the family, but we wouldn't necessarily categorize them as a loved one. So that's why we use the term carry, for instance. So if we go a little broader and we think about caregiving as an experience of helping a family member or friend, 
then does that get too broad? So one of the family caregivers on caregiving.com really kind of became a little upset about the idea that we define caregiving broadly because she was really entrenched in a really difficult caregiving experience. And she felt it was important that people know that it's difficult and it's intense and it's stressful. And she felt that the definition was too broad, it watered down the stress of the experience, which I can understand. Well, you, 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 yeah, you've got a good point. Okay, so the minute you said that, I was like, oh, right, because I know a, a bunch of women and, 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 and men who have stepped in for, like, next-door neighbors who they've known for years and are doing as much or more than a lot of sons and daughters. So, but now why, why was my original response? Well, it's based on my experience of working with yes, daughterhood right. and working with, yes. with, with so, right. so, so right. you, know, you yeah. know, that kind of narrows my picture. Also, I kind of get where that woman's coming from because when we're going through something that can be so traumatic and so isolating because of all the reasons it is, not to mention, you know, not enough help from our government or society and on our own and not enough help from our family sometimes that you become almost like you're embattled. And, and, and one of the things you hold on to is, is, you know, how hard you have it and how hard you're working and how much you're doing. And to have that challenged by the idea that somebody that might bring the newspaper in once a week, I can understand that. <laughs> That's exactly it. That was exactly her point. That was exactly her point. Okay, so I love I love that example. It's someone who brings in the newspaper once a week. They're helping a family member. Would they be a family caregiver? I mean, that's where we get to, right? It seems like we have drilled down into nonsense, and yet the definition, definition is important because the correct number of family caregivers helps us better understand services and support and helps us better lobby for services and support. So when you think about the number, more than 90 million help and support a family member, wow, why isn't there more help and support for these 90 million individuals? The data well, is that, compelling. Well, that brings us also to, right, right. That also brings us to the point of why they're fearing, feel, why she's feeling this pressure and anger in the first place. And a lot of it is because that she's of the lack of services and help from community um, the state and government level, and even from family. Um, and it's indicative of the whole problem of, of the crisis of, of family caregiving in our country. Um, it's not surprising that people that are involved heavily in family caregiving are being stressed out and angry. It's just not surprising. So is there an argument for lowering the number so that the services and support are more so here's where I'm going with this. If we lower the number, mm -hmm. does that make it easier for, for instance, the government to say, oh, well, if there's only 40 million, we can do something to help them. But, oh, my gosh, how are we going to come up with the money if there's 90 million? But then <laughs> what happens to those people in between? Well, I hate to be cynical. <laughs> Go for but, it. Go for it. Well, you know, I mean, we see in politics all the time they massage the numbers to make the sound, to make it say what yes. they want it to say. Yes. The truth, the truth to people that are on the front lines like you and I, and to family caregivers, 
are on the front lines of health care and caring for the elderly in this country, um, they know the truth, that, 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 that help is needed, more help, any shape or form that can be, more. So to say that, that to be overwhelmed by the numbers is, 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 a, is a, simply a mistake. I mean, it's okay. a mistake, of course, in the most simple sense, but yeah. Okay. So when Not we saying do they won't service, do <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> we can <laughs> we can only be accountable to ourselves. What happens outside right, right. of our conversation is beyond our control. <laughs> so when we do research of family caregivers, is it necessary to include a definition of who we want to research and then exclude? that individual that brings in the newspaper once a week. Hmm. How about not excluding them, but having, having sub-definitions or, 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 you know, different categories, you know, it's just, okay. like, it's just, it's just like in mental, in mental illness, there's a big difference between someone who needs to be hospitalized and someone who needs to just take medication and someone that maybe right. just needs therapy, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, well, and here's what could be interesting. If we, if we found those people who are bringing in the newspaper once a week and then followed what happens to them, meaning, okay, I'm going to help out by bringing in the newspaper once a week to my neighbors who are 90. And then what happens from there? Does the newspaper once a week turn into grocery shopping once a week? Does it also turn into running errands? If we eliminate that, And a very well might. Yes. Are we eliminating the potential to track who could become that family caregiver? Yeah, I think you know, you're right. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea that you have, which is, okay, let's define the family caregiver at the start of a research project, but then maybe have them take different types of surveys based on where they are in caregiving. So, you know, in a way, that, that's a good idea. You know, I think in a way it brings us back to the idea of, of why the, the young woman or the woman you spoke to was angry. And I think because what are we doing? We're, we're measuring, we're measuring the, the, uh, the strength of people's empathy and their ability to, empathy, to, 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 to care for others. And some are going to answer the call and some are not. Some will be. Some will pick up the newspaper of the neighbor, and three years down the road, will be taken to the doctor's appointments and and helping in a million ways. And others will just kind of, for whatever reason, they won't. And so, it, it's it's um, that's the shame of when I think that's the position we're put in when we when when the government and and you know and and the the services aren't when the services aren't in place. It you know it leaves it up to the community and the community is going to respond in different ways. Like I say, everyone's everyone's heart is is turned in different by different things and at different times. You know, and for a million reasons. Okay, here's the sense. other thing that it does because here's what could be really compelling. What if again going back to this, I just love this example of the person just bringing up the newspaper once a week. <laughs> what if we right? What if we followed that person and figured out? What is that point of no return and where do they turn? So they can see that someone needs more help. What is it that kicks in so that they help more or that they disappear? 
So we know it's fear. What is it that helps them stay? And what is it that just sends them running down the road, never to return? If we could find that person and figure out what is it that they need to stay and help, I think that would be quite compelling. That would be compelling. I you know. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in a situation like that because, you know, there is a big difference between family caregiver and friend of family who yes. steps into a caregiving role. And I think yes. one of the things that, 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 that makes it difficult for someone who's a friend is all the, just as the family caregiver, just as the daughter or the son who ends up taking care, switching roles with their parent, just is that shocking to them and hard for them to make that transition. It's even harder, I think, for the neighbor who has just been a friend for maybe even it could be 20 years or so, but to switch roles into being almost like a son or a daughter um, and to cross that line, that societal line of, of family, um, that's got to be difficult. And I think, in, and I think um, you know, um, in, uh, adds to this argument. Uh, yeah. Okay, so boy, my wheels are spinning now. So the six stages of care <laughs> the six stages of caregiving is a concept I developed and you know about it, Susan, through uh-huh, the training uh-huh. program, which really speaks to the fact that at different points in our experience we need different things. And so the services and support should should really follow our experience and should adjust to what it is that we need. Wouldn't it be really interesting to survey individuals at different points along those stages? to better understand what's really going on with their journey. When did you really uncovered a, you've uncovered a whole other need for for services to someone who's just trying to help another family. Think how hard it's going to be to get them to, for them to get any kind of authority in working with health decisions and stuff. I mean, that's a whole other field. Right. Of discovery. Yes. Right. And I think it would be really interesting to see when that light switch flips from, oh, this is manageable to, oh, this is not manageable for me. Right, right, right. And I can easily manage a situation, imagine a situation where you have an elderly neighbor that you've lived next door for 20 years and you're trying to help and you get drawn deeper in, but you find that the family is unresponsive and doesn't, doesn't want to become involved and yet you have no, you're struggling with, with on that in-between gray area of being a family caregiver and not having any ability to really make decisions and even running up against, against animosity from the family's point of view out of whether they feel guilty or of some sort of family issue. I mean, wow, what a hard role to be in. Yeah. So one of the students in the most recent training program asked me, what do people search in Google to find you? (laughs) So what came up for me is one of the most read blog posts on my website. And this literally is the headline. Well, (laughs) not literally because I'm not going to get it verbatim, but it's something like caring for your elderly parents will kill you faster than anything else. (laughs) <laughs> that's pre- that's pretty much the headline, and that's what people will. That sadly, might be true. <laughs> yes. So the search terms are something like, "caring for my is killing me." 
That is really the search term. Can you imagine that? Uh, well, I, I, I can. <laughs> so what what happens that we switch from, okay, this is doable to this is completely unmanageable, and what if there was research that helped us figure this out? Okay, Susan, we've got a caller. I'm going to bring the caller on, and we'll see sure. what our caller wants to add to our conversation. So welcome, caller from area code 252. This is Denise. You're on the air. Tell us what you're thinking about today's conversation. Hi, Denise. This is Lark. How are you? Hi, Lark. How are you? I'm okay. I was listening and thinking about helping others outside of your family, and that is, I've been in that position before just because of concern, and it is a very difficult um thing to do because I found that there were times when I thought I was helping but I wasn't providing what even the people I was helping actually needed. I ended up providing what I thought they would need just based on um, my impressions, which often are not correct because I remember uh, my son and I bought an electric heater for an elderly couple who we knew didn't have enough heat. Well, I never saw it again, and I realized that I think it, they didn't. They were afraid to have it plugged in. Um, I didn't ask them what they needed, and so I find that as often, it's really important to ask people what they need, what means the most to them, and if you can provide that even on a very uh, simple level, it does help. Otherwise, I'm, I find I'm often not helping anyone but myself emotionally. Uh, right. doing yes, that. exactly. Right. Okay. And the other yeah, and the other yeah, thing ahead. that you're talking about caregiving, um, and I'm just now working through this with my husband and and we had a really good chat on it last night about nursing homes. And I think caregiving extends on into the nursing home and even sort of um, graduates because their advocacy skills and your ability to talk with others without flipping out on them, you know, so you can actually (laughs) have a conversation and maybe get something done. Those skills have to be more sophisticated in that environment. And my husband has FTD, so they have dementia patients, but, I was just, we were talking about this morning on chat too. They have, they, I realize they have to clump dementia together because they cannot treat each person individually based on their specific diagnosis. And yet FTD has very specific differences. And at first I was just getting angry and then I was able to understand their challenges. And, and over a period of time, they were listening to me. And um, at first, I was with anger and then later with understanding. But that is full-time yes. caregiving, going back and yes. forth to the nursing home. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, those are two great points, Lark. I'm so glad that you called. So I'm going to put you back on hold so you can continue okay. to listen to the conversation. And I, I want to take your second point, too, which is great. One of the things that we talk about in a caregiving experience is that it's not location-based because people will opt out of the family caregiver category because they say, well, I don't live with my caree or my caree lives in a facility. 
and so I must not be a family caregiver, which is completely false. You are a family caregiver regardless of where your carry lives because caregiving is an emotional experience. It's not location-based. So that gets to the other part about how do we figure out who a family caregiver is, is, is if they automatically opt out. <laughs> if they say, oh, I'm not, when they are. Right, right, right. Yeah, I can vouch for the location-based muscles problem of its own sort. My, when my mother was in the nursing home, just like Lark said, the dealing with all of that was some of the hardest part of caregiving. And, I mean, it's, a, it's a, you know, one of the hardest Yes, parts. and the guilt around it, too, is incredible. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Did I do the right thing? Is this the right facility? And I just want to mention, too, Lark, that yesterday we did a podcast on training our individuals who care for our family members, and we talked about dementia care training. And one of the points that you raised, Lark, is one of the conversations that we had during the podcast. How do we care for each individual individual, each individual with a dementia diagnosis when how that when that diagnosis is different and how dementia is different for each individual. So we're really looking at a strategy around training, not necessarily specific tools. How do we strategize to help those who have dementia? Oh my gosh, this is You know, Denise, you say you say did I do the right thing? That really rings a bell with yeah. me. I think probably if there's any phrase that caregivers lay awake at night and say over and over to themselves in their caregiving is, did I do the right thing? It's so hard to know sometimes. Other than I would say from my experience in dealing with family caregivers and trying to help, they work so hard and try so hard when you give your best and it's out of love. Yes, you did the right thing. And it's, the, it's very similar to the question of, am I doing enough? Am I enough? Mm-hmm. Am right. I enough sure. for this? Mm-hmm. Am I enough? And it's hard to figure out the answer because you always think, well, I could, do be, I could be doing more. I could be doing more. And really, oftentimes, less is more, which is the antithesis of what we believe. But there are points during caregiving where less is more. And it's hard for us to make that switch. Okay, so Susan, we've done a lot of work in the past 28 minutes or so, and what I think <laughs> what I think is coming out of our conversation is that we still have a lot more work to do, and I think it's really thinking about caregiving as the spectrum. And I go back to the six stages. It's about thinking of how caregiving changes because of the intensity. And wouldn't it be interesting to really find family caregivers at different stages to understand? what their thoughts are, what their worries are, how they're approaching the experience, and what they need given where they are today. I think that would be fascinating. You know, as, as you end, I just want to say that that kind of sometimes happens in the daughterhood circles we have. One of the greatest things I've seen, which is about those, is there are women coming together at different, all at different stages. And sometimes knowing that the stage you're in will end and will get better and just sharing the, sharing back and forth the information, those kind of things can be so helpful. Absolutely. So, Susan, tell us about daughterhood. Oh, my goodness. We have, what, a minute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got a couple well, minutes. It, it, you've got it, a couple minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, in a, in a nutshell, um, it was started in um, 
January of 2015 by Ann Tomlinson, um, and I was on board with her at the very beginning, and has worked her life in the healthcare industry. Um, um, and to the, you know, and she is so knowledgeable um, to the point of she testified before Congress several times, and she felt there was just this hole, um, and saw this 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 tsunami of elderly care and daughters involved um, coming toward us, and felt she needed to do something, and she started Daughterhood, and it, it started. Um, one of the one of her aces in the hole is is that. She, she has such empathy for this community, and at the same time, she has such knowledge um, of of the intricacies of Medicare and Medicaid and all of the all of the the, for want of a better word, wacky twists and turns of our our existing healthcare system. Um, that we we became very successful very quickly because, it, as you probably discovered, Denise, it's an underserved community that is screaming for any piece of help or um, that they can that they can find, um, and. Uh, it's it's just blossomed over the last three years. Uh, we started daughterhood circles, and that which are basically small groups of women getting together over wine all over the country um, to just share their their experiences and to feel a little bit less isolated. We started that because we got tons of questions about specific questions about what's the best assisted living home for my mom in Tampa. Well, we don't know. <laughs> what's what's a good senior senior citizen? Um, uh, uh, in a daycare situation in 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 San Diego, we, so that's how we started those, and um, it's been one of our most most um, gratifying projects. In that, again, this community is community of caregivers are so isolated. It's so easy to feel like you're on your own, and lots of times, sadly, you are. Um, you know, I, my experience with caregiving was my dearest and best friends. When I went into too, too much detail about my situation with my mom, they kind of glaze over. <laughs> if you're not going through it, you just don't get it. And so um, daughterhood is more and more turning into a community of, of oh, I would say, just friends helping friends, trying yeah. trying to see the light at the end of the tunnel and to help each other. So that's kind of, that's daughterhood. What a great story. And it's the story of advocacy and willpower and let's make a difference mm. and that's what you guys do and I, I will say that I'm awed I, uh, you know and, I'm, and I, I, I don't have to guess I know you are too by the courage of people involved in caregiving it's it's there is nothing harder than watching someone you love uh, grow older yeah. and, and, and frailer yeah. and, and to slowly fade there's nothing harder in this world and the courage it yeah. takes to make the kind of decisions sometimes I'm just I'm just Amazed, amazed. Yeah, I think it's the pain and suffering that we witness that takes mm-hmm. a level of courage that we didn't necessarily realize that we had. Right. And it's something right. that we call upon every day. We call upon our courage every day. And that's why we yeah. need support yeah. and help. And that's why we need people right. to understand what it's like for us. Okay, this is only yeah. the beginning, Susan, I think. This was great. This was a great conversation. Oh. Enjoyed it so much. <laughs> Good. Uh, thank you so much, Susan. Well, well, I think we should follow up on this and see what happens. Where do we go from here? What's what's our next steps? And then how do we make it? Uh-huh. How do we create this definition that really works? Okay. And <laughs> lastly, yeah, I know, Susan. How can people get a hold of Daughterhood? What's your website address? 
Daughterhood.org. Nice and easy. Nice and easy. Susan Rowe, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it so much. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. Thanks to Lark for calling in. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.